Welcome to the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast, the podcast that will help you find solutions for your weight concerns that will last a lifetime, together for you. Welcome to episode eight. I'm your host, Siobhan Key. I'm happy that you're here. Uh, This episode is going to give you a chance to hear a dietitian's perspective on low-carb diets. Uh, I'm quite excited about it. I had the opportunity to interview Joy Kitty, who goes by the Low Carb Healthy Fat Dietitian, uh, about her thoughts and how she approaches lower carb diets with her clients. She's been working for years with private clients and has been using a lower carb approach for the last few years, and so has experience on both sides and talks about it in this interview. I think it's really fascinating to hear her tips and tricks, and there's some really useful stuff in here. Joy can be found on her website at lchf-rd.com. As you'll hear in the episode, I'm definitely going over there to check out her pizza dough recipe with yeast as soon as she has it posted. If you're enjoying this podcast, please go over to iTunes and leave a review. It really helps the podcast get found. And remember to hit the subscribe button that lets you get the most up-to-date episode as soon as they're available. Let's get to the interview. All right. Welcome to the podcast, Joy. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? Not too bad. Yourself? I'm good. All right. So uh, what we planned on was just sitting down and talking a little bit about lower carb diet approaches uh, from a dietitian's perspective, which is yours. But I was wondering, do you want to start by kind of letting us know of how you got to this spot? Sure. It's... um... It's an interesting story, especially since it involves me getting to where I am because of a retired physician friend who came to talk to me. It's going on five years ago. It will be May 2015. No, so it's four years ago, 2015. She came to talk to me because she wanted to implement a lower carb uh, approach to help her husband who's dealing with various metabolic diseases and she wanted to know what my thoughts were on it and uh, so she came over and I had of course heard of Atkins back in the day I'm old enough to remember when Atkins was new and uh, she came and was was discussing um, Jason Fung's website and and his blogs and this was way back before he wrote any books when he was just spending all this time like I do now writing lots of blogs and I had no idea who he was and hadn't read any of his blogs. And the thing is, from a physiological point of view, everything she was saying made total sense. And I was like, okay, we all learned this in endocrinology. We all learned this going through our undergraduate and we chucked it out the window and taught Canada's food guide. Yeah. I didn't really teach Canada's food guide because I always thought Canada's food guide was um confusing and and um encourage way too much carbohydrate um and kind of demonize fat for like I, I couldn't think of i couldn't see the evidence base for demonizing you know not that i think people should eat unlimited amounts of saturated fat you know pouring bacon fat on everything or whatever mm-hmm. but at the same time vilifying it so that you know, we can't eat meat because, uh, or cheese because it's got um, saturated fat in it. So I committed to her that I would read his blogs, not realizing at that point he had been blogging for a year and a half. 
and uh, so I started reading his blogs and I got about three quarters the way through it took me about six weeks of reading every night for like two hours and he I don't know if he's even still blogging that much because he's so busy with his books and everything else but at the time he was blogging he would just put the link to the paper right there so you could click on it and actually read the paper and being a nerd and a, a you know having a research background I of course went and read the paper to make sure it said what he said it was saying and it did mm -hmm. and I got to the point where I realized I either have to like you can't unhear something right I either have to say no this is not evidence-based and keep doing what I'm doing or change what I'm doing and I was convinced that there was enough evidence from the studies that he presented this is before Virta's studies this is before you know some of the before the pure data like I mean before a lot of things that there was strong evidence that this was a very good therapeutic approach for people who are metabolically unwell. Mm -hmm. So I put my practice on hold for three months. I had a, a handful of people who were waiting for meal plans. And I said, I can do it the way I've always done it. Or you can wait for six weeks or three months till I come up with a new system of doing it based on this. And I told them what I had been reading and what I was considering. And I think it was four or five uh, clients were all willing to wait for me to revamp how I was doing it. And I didn't take any new clients until I could figure out what I was doing. Contacted Dr. Fung, who was very helpful, mm -hmm. and helped me with troubleshooting macros at that point, which of course is his way of doing macros, which now, four years later, is different than how I have ended up doing it myself. Just because in clinical practice, working with the population that I do, uh, the very, very high fat um, approach with intermittent, long intermittent fast isn't the best way to go. Um, mm -hmm. And then realizing, as Megan had said during the uh, Low Carb Breckenridge conference, that's his assistant, that the main reason that they do large, long-term intermittent fasting is because they're dealing with a population that really can't afford to eat low carb ketogenically all the time and by doing long intermittent fast kind of balances itself out and I'm going oh well now that I understand that I don't feel so bad about not doing you know super long fasts um, but my practice changed and four and a half years ago well, I guess it's, it's four years ago I changed my practice with my clients I must and have then, some guts Hey, like I've always believed in doing being evidence-based and if the evidence changes the practice has to change yeah I mean we're evidence-based practice that means we base our practice on evidence presented with new evidence that was very solid and is getting more and more solid you know four years into this I'm more convinced now that this is a very solid therapeutic approach for addressing um, type 2 diabetes, insulin resistance, high, high blood pressure, certainly obesity, mm -hmm. and may be a very good preventative approach to keep people from becoming metabolically unwell. Mm -hmm. Although there's less evidence of that right now for me to, you know, 
kind of um, go in that direction. So, I mean, my, my main approach is dealing with people who are metabolically unwell because statistically 88% of people are metabolically unwell. And I'm not really finding the difference that much different here than, than in the States, but you know, being gracious, we could say, well, even if it's 75, because we have a, a lower, you know, one in three, one in four obesity rate versus a one in three obesity rate, still 75% of the people are metabolically unwell. Yeah, and those are the people I help. That's awesome. When did you start using it personally? It will be two years on March 5th this year. So mm-hmm. it's 23 months and we can practically do the days. I'm three weeks from two years. And um, the story of how, of how I ended up doing, I started doing it around the time, uh, shortly after I did it with my, started with my clients. And then a whole bunch of things happened with my own health. I, I ended up uh, getting um, mast cell activation disorder as a result of black mold exposure. I was very, very sick. Mm. Um, and had to just focus on getting well, not realizing in hindsight, probably the best thing I could have done was that been low carb that would have lowered my inflammation and, you know, um, uh, immunological response. Knowing what I know now, I would have done it differently, but it was March 5th, uh, two years ago, I was sitting at my desk, this desk just didn't feel good. So I went and took my blood pressure and I looked at it and it was 199 over 100. Oh, wow. And I went, wow, that can't be right. So I went and laid down and took it, you know, after 10 or 15 minutes. And so it was, I don't know, 189 over 92 or 96 or whatever. It was still ridiculous. And then I thought, well, you know, I, I guess I should take my blood sugar. I hadn't done it in about two years. Type 2 diabetic for eight years. And I took it. It was about an hour after eating lunch, and it was 13 point something. Mm. And I went, I go to my GP. He's going to send me in a um, cab or an ambulance to the hospital because he won't let me drive. And I'm going to come home on four or five medications, which I probably should have done. In hindsight, I should have let him put me on the medications, change my diet and get off the medications. But I didn't. I was terrified. Hmm. And that day I started eating low carb myself. Uh, So it's March 5th, 2017. And I've lost 52 pounds. My uh, type 2 diabetes has been in remission. reported remission for three months. I'm below the criteria for type two diabetes, both by fasting blood sugar and hemoglobin A1C. Awesome. My blood pressure is still uh, stage one hypertension. So my endocrinologist suggested that we use a low dose ramipril just to protect my kidneys and that made sense. So I'm doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm figure at some point my liver will figure this out and I won't need the blood pressure medication anymore. I'm taking metformin. Uh, I started metformin about two, two months ago or three months ago after I lost the weight, after I was in partial remission um, because my father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And I, mm-hmm. it made a lot of sense to keep my insulin and glucose response as normal as possible even though, you know, the diet was certainly doing it. Right. 
um, and my endocrinologist totally supported me in it. So here I am on meds two years later after I lost the weight, after I reversed my diabetes, after I or put my diabetes into remission um, mm -hmm. because it seemed like the most, most, the wisest thing to do to protect myself. So, Yeah. And I, you know, I think in that setting, you've already shown yourself you have the control over it. It's just then you're making the conscious decision to add a few extra tools. Well, it just seems to make, to make sense. I should, I should have really started the meds initially mm -hmm. and then lowered the dose or gotten off them when I lost weight because my blood pressure was ridiculous. My blood sugar was ridiculous, but I was, I mean, I'm, I'm a dietitian, you know, with a postgraduate degree, but I'm a scared patient like anybody else. I mean, we're mm -hmm. clinicians, but we don't stop being patients when it's our blood pressure and our labs. So. Yeah. Did you have any of that, like, this happens to doctors a lot of the, you know, I should know better, this shouldn't happen. <laughs> I look at the two degrees on the wall. I have a, a bachelor's degree in, in dietetics and human nutrition from McGill and, and a master's degree in human nutrition from UBC. And I'm like, wow, talk about failure. Here I was, obese, type 2 diabetes. Uh, uncontrolled hypertension and I'm going but I didn't teach weight loss as the mainstay of my practice the mainstay of my practice was food allergies food sensitivities celiac yeah. disease irritable bowel syndrome and mental health nutrition which is what my research is in so I mean I wasn't anyone to give anyone diet advice for losing weight so that wasn't what I was focusing on so I didn't feel like a failure in that sense I felt like I should know better because it was so obvious when my girlfriend explained to me the low carb, you know, the physiology, and she felt just as stupid. She's not been a doctor for 20 years. Yeah. And it never occurred to me until I heard Jason Fung talk about it. And I felt I should know better. So I figured, well, she's a, an MD and I'm a, an RD. And if she, if she wasn't embarrassed to say that she didn't know, then it's okay for me to say I didn't know either. Oh, totally. Yeah, I think of what we were taught in medical school and uh, like, it, yeah, it, we were taught about insulin and what it did, but then all the other stuff didn't actually match up with that. There was big disconnects. Yeah. Insulin for us was the hormone that got blood sugar out of the blood and into the cells. I didn't think of it as a fat storage hormone. Mm -hmm. We think of it as a fat storage hormone. It's entirely, you know, and, and we think of looking at the work of um, Dr. Joseph Kraft and the whole insulin glucose relationship and hyperinsulinemia and the metabolic diseases that are, are really more related to high insulin levels and high glucose levels. And mm -hmm. the fact that this isn't even measured. We look at fasting blood glucose. We look at hemoglobin A1C. Normal, you're fine. Yeah, no. It, What's it, happening at thirty minutes in one hour? Oh, it's thirteen point two at half an hour. Mm -hmm. Oh, what does that mean? It means that you're not, you know, you don't have a, a normal, healthy metabolic response. And if you keep eating the way you're eating, you're going to end up like me, type two diabetic with high blood pressure. Yeah, it's all about that, uh, the continuum, right? Like, how do we catch it earlier? Before it's I'd love to do that. That's really my goal is to help people catch it before before they even become pre-diabetic. 
Mm -hmm. Because once you become pre-diabetic, you've really been pre-diabetic for 10 years. Yeah. So I'm, I'm uh, focusing on writing a book and the approach to take that will encourage people to want to know how to avoid because there's this belief that it's a prog chronic progressive disease and it's inevitable. Right. Yeah. Once you become pre-diabetic, it's just a matter of time until you become diabetic. And once you become diabetic, it's just a matter of time until you're on insulin. And that is not true. And it, it, it is if you continue to eat a standard American diet, it, it's true. But we could give people choices. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so let's talk about kind of some practical tips from your standpoint as a dietitian for physicians who are trying to figure this out for themselves in the context of a busy life. Um, maybe if we start with, like, what would be the sort of the big things that you recommend to new clients starting low carb? Do you have kind of top tips that you give them? Well, I think because uh, this is geared primarily to physicians, before I get into tips, the first thing I'd, I'd want to mention is I look at blood work and I'm one of the few dietitians that will not see somebody without seeing a full set of labs. I want to see fasting blood glucose. I want to see hemoglobin A1C. I want to see fasting insulin. And if possible, I want to see a one hour, a 30 minute or a one hour um, uh, simultaneous blood glucose and, fat and, and insulin response to a standard 75 gram glucose load. Because we can tell huge amounts based on some uh, two, actually now there's three studies that show normal fasting blood glucose and normal hemoglobin A1C is not enough to show that you're metabolically well. We need to see what's happening at 30 minutes and or one hour. So, and then I, I also like to see a lipid panel because I want to see what's happening with triglycerides. I want to see what's happening with uh, LDL. If it's high, okay, then, then what's your triglyceride to HDL ratio as right. a proxy for ApoB to ApoA to ApoB. So um, I want to know about waist circumference. I want to know people's waist to height ratio. So it's, it's a much bigger picture than implementing a low-carb diet because it's different for people of different genders, different ages, um, different metabolic backgrounds, people who are diabetic versus someone who is um, um, metabolically se um, sensitive. I mean, we find people... Very few of them, but I get a, you know I do these get this blood work from a couple of people, and I find people who are overweight, who have you know you're convinced they're going to come back with insulin resistant, and they're insulin sensitive, and you go, wow, you are really fortunate. You basically have a lot of choices, and they you know they want to do this because they want to avoid becoming diabetic, but. When people are insulin resistant, even if their fasting blood glucose and hemoglobin A1C is normal, that's significant because it gives people, especially people with a clinical background, but even my, my regular uh, clients, they, when I explain it to them and I say, even though the standard labs that are being looked at would say, you're fine, you're you know, low risk, if, you're fast, if your blood sugar at you know, 30 minutes is 13 point something after a 75 gram load, that's significantly greater than 7.8. And at one hour, if it's greater than 6.5, you're, 
you know, you get nine point something, then, you know, you're already on your way to becoming pre-diabetic. That gives people a huge motivation for mm. change. And I think in speaking with diet, in speaking with physicians here, go see your doctor and get labs run and get the fa the fasting insulin and the uh, uh, an oral glucose tolerance test with simultaneous glucose and insulin because those numbers are hugely revealing about whether you're insulin sensitive or insulin resistant and will make a difference which approach will work better for you right so as far as tips go um Men can pretty well do what they want. They can follow high fat, low, you know, low fat, high protein, carnivore. I mean, seriously, it's very unfair, but women, in my experience, don't have the, as many options. Mm -hmm. Young women who are very athletic uh, or very active um, ha can, you know, can do a higher protein or a higher fat um, approach and do well with it. Women of a certain age, as I call them, postmenopausal or perimenopausal, really don't do well on a very high fat approach. Mm -hmm. I have probably a third of my clients come to me after getting a generic diet off a well-known webpage, you know, the keto challenge off a well-known webpage, and they've gained weight. And they come to me yeah. and said, I don't know what's going on. I've gained 15 pounds since I've been doing a keto diet. What am I doing wrong? And they're just eating unlimited amounts of fat and moderate amounts of protein and very low carb and they're gaining weight. So I don't think that that's the best approach for perimenopausal or postmenopausal women. I think for many reasons, a higher protein, lean protein, but a higher protein approach, especially to avoid sarcopenia mm -hmm. and a lower, lower added fat. I wouldn't say lower fat because the fat that comes with food is fine. So if you're eating, cheese don't eat low-fat cheese if you like cream in your coffee put cream in your coffee if you are having a steak and you like you know that little bit of uh, fat on the bone when you barbecue a steak and you want to eat it go ahead but if you don't particularly like the skin on chicken if it isn't super crispy then don't eat it it's just excess fat that you don't need I'd much rather see people burning their own fat stores than um, you know, adding lots of dietary fat, which really is still added calories. I mean, mm -hmm. that, that word calories, people act like calories don't count when it comes to a, a low carb approach. Well, they do count. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, no calories in, calories out, which kind of calories do matter and, and the source of the calories do matter and they're not all the same. But at the end of the day, if you're eating, you know, 400 or 600 more calories is added fat than you need, you're not going to lose weight as effectively as if you don't. And I think that's a really common misconception of lower carb diets because partly what's shown on the internet is all the really enticing, rich recipes, right? Mm -hmm. Which are very high fat. And so people think that to do a lower carb, that's the level of high fat you have to eat versus just eating the amount of fat that actually keeps you satisfied. That comes with the food you're eating. Yeah. I mean, and then I tell people, if you're going to eat a big salad and you need a certain amount of olive oil or, or vinaigrette to make it taste good so you'll eat lots of it, go ahead. If you need a bit of butter on your vegetables, low-carb vegetables, to eat them, to enjoy them, go ahead. And in small quantities. 
Mm-hmm. But if you don't need them, don't add them. Yeah. And what do you recommend? Um, like just for, you mentioned like people eating very low carb, but do you have a preferred carb level or do you tailor that depending on the person's response? Initially, I started this approach for, um, how would we say, avoiding uh, litigation. I started everybody uh, four years ago at 130 grams. Yeah. And only lowered them as clinically necessary to achieve metabolic outcomes. Okay. Much to my surprise, a great number of people do incredibly well at 130 grams of carbohydrate and they don't need less than that. Unless they're type two diabetic and been that way for a while, they're newly diagnosed diabetic and didn't have any, like had been tested over the years and didn't have any indication they were pre-diabetic. Then they're in the category of people that can actually reverse their diabetes because it's under two years they actually can do very well at 130 or 100 grams of carbohydrates or um, if their women sometimes need to go down a little bit more than that. But I'd say about 70 to 80% of my clients do exceptionally well for the first while at 130 grams of carbohydrates because they're used to eating 300 or 350. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the way I look at it is why lower people down to a ketogenic level unless they need it. Mm -hmm. I'm actually the lowest of all of my clients and I consider myself one of my clients. I actually consider myself my first client because if I don't treat me first, I can't help anybody else. Mm -hmm. And I'm at a ketogenic level because I have to be. I started at 130 grams. That was a joke. I went to hundred that didn't work. I went to 75 that wasn't working either went to 50, went to 35, and then I ended up between 20 and 25. And that works. That lowered my fasting blood glucose, my hemoglobin A1C, it was turning around my lipids, it was lowering my blood pressure, and finally got my liver to start giving up the its uh, treasure trove of fat. <laughs> and it was literally like someone had inserted a tube and it was just, you know, draining my liver of fat. But I have to maintain that level of carbohydrate restriction. Very few of my clients do. Very few even need to be ketogenic, which is really was really surprising to me. I started this approach purely to avoid litigation way back in the day, four years ago, um, when you know we were all waiting for uh, the Tim Noakes, Gary Fetke results to come. And I was like, I'm not putting my head on the chopping block, 130 grams, and we're only going to lower it if, if it's you know, to achieve metabolic outcomes. Many times I didn't have to lower it. People did really well and they lost weight and turned their their markers around with 130 grams. Which is awesome. I find that with my um, clients, is I think because ketogenic stuff is so popular in the media right now that people assume that if you're eating lower carb, it is ketogenic. Yeah. And I do a lot of talking about, like if that's what you choose for yourself, okay, that's fine if that's where you want to be, but you don't have to. Like you can get results and have a little bit more carbohydrate. And Uh, people are actually quite surprised. They're like, Mm -hmm. it's almost like somewhere between heretical and blasphemous to, to suggest that people should eat carbs. 
but I don't, but I'm kind of very particular which carbs I want people to eat. I don't want them having grain-based carbs, rice or pasta or, or bread, because really from a nutritional point of view, those are really very poor. I'd much rather people have the same number of carbs that they would otherwise have, but as good quality starch, uh, starchy vegetables like squash and yam, you know, purple yeah. or yellow yam or uh, winter squash or plantain or, you know, peas or corn. What do you think of beans and legumes? That's always been a hot topic. It isn't. Uh, I learned a lot. I'm in a Facebook group called Lower Insulin. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's run by a guy by the name of Gabor Erdozi, who's a food scientist from uh, Hungary, who is, he's read in a lot, up until a year ago when he did his talk in um, the Czech Republic, he had read 4,000 papers in the last five years. Research. Oh, wow. This guy is, he, he makes me look non-nerdy. I mean, he just <laughs> is always in the, in, the, in the literature and his thing is insulin. What affects insulin? Um, he did a talk. I've got the two talks summarized on my webpage, part one and part two of um, food processing and how it affects uh, insulin levels and glucose levels. And that was a game changer for me because as it turned out, um, certain kinds of carbohydrates like legumes, if they're cooked from dried legumes that are soaked and not overcooked and not pureed, very often cause a very minimal, if any, glucose response and a very low insulin response. Hmm. If they're canned ones, even whole, significantly higher glucose and insulin response. If they're pureed, which is, you know, hummus is pureed, lentil soup is pureed, yeah. you might as well be eating bread <laughs> or pasta. And just because it breaks down the structure of the starch? is that Exactly. Yeah. Keeping the starch intact so whole food approach where your grain, like so you could eat something like buckwheat or barley that's intact, that is not overcooked, and the glycemic response and the insulin response is really minimal, even in type 2 diabetics. Yeah. So if people want to have it, I'll say, well, okay, you may not have it, like, especially if they're South Asian and they want to eat dull, well, you might have to have it as in this form because there are dishes that are made with whole chickpeas or whole mm -hmm. lentils rather than this form where it's ground or, or, or pureed. So sometimes it's a question of how you cook it, how long you cook it, whether you cook it from canned ones or dried soaked ones. But they can be, and there are lots of people who are vegetarian who um, need legumes as a protein source because there's only so much eggs and cheese you can have yeah and so depending or for religious reasons they don't need animals for ethical reasons they don't need animals mm -hmm. so, you know there's a huge variety of people their background their cultural background religious reasons ethical reasons that we need to to keep our mind open that like personally i very rarely eat legumes i last week i made lentil soup posted the recipe online and said, don't puree this soup, cook it until it's not, you know, too soft. And this is why. Mm -hmm. um, and I run my own blood work with uh, whole chickpeas and shown the difference between that and hummus. It's like almost flat line when I do it with chickpeas that are soaked from dried and not overcooked. 
Like so, and I do it for five hours. I don't have, I don't use a continuous glucose meter. I just use a regular good quality glucometer. And so, it, hmm? I was going to say for your vegetarian clients, so you generally give them that advice. Like obviously you need to eat beans and legumes as protein sources, but try to keep them as whole and cook from dry and don't overcook as much as possible. And they don't have to eat them. They could eat eggs and cheese. Mm -hmm. and not eat them if they don't want to but i i like to give people as much variety as possible because the whole way people are going to stick with this as a lifestyle is if it's not restrictive and and they can eat foods they like Absolutely. so by not having people restrict their carbohydrates more than they need to before they need to uh so starting them at 130 maybe lowering it to 100 or lowering it to 75 eventually as they need to, to lose weight more, bring their blood sugar to the next level. Uh, it's not an automatic thing where you have to cut out everything. And giving people the option, yes, you can have legumes sometimes and have them in this form. Um, less restrictive and people stick with it a lot longer. Totally. So the messaging being it, carbs aren't evil. But... <laughs> When I just wrote a blog them. called Carbohydrates Aren't Evil. Yeah. When you choose them, the, the quality of them matter. Yeah. And pe like when I posted that blog, I thought people are going to put the, you know, the heretic mark on me. Here I am, the low-carb, healthy-fat dietitian, and I'm saying carbohydrates aren't evil. Yeah. And then I wrote another blog called uh, I'm a, nutri a nutritional centrist, using the, the term centrism from politics, where you've got you know, left-wing, right-wing, libertarian, authoritarian. And then like there's this whole area in here where you can be omnivore, um, uh, pescatarian, vegetarian, and and anywhere in there on the conti continuum and fall in a moderate middle ground. You've got vegans on one hand and, and uh, carnivores on the other, but in the middle is this huge range of possibilities and people can fall anywhere in there and eat a very healthy diet, whether they're eating a POP diet from, you know, a uh, Simalhotra, or they're eating a um, something along the lines of what Dr. Eric Westman does, or along the lines of what Verta Health does, or what you do, or what I do. There's a whole range of possibilities, um, and if it's as close to what people are already doing when they became metabolically unhealthy, with the fixes built in, mm -hmm. they're going to stick with it because it's like what they're doing but fixed. Yeah better let's talk about fats and um because that's another common question i get is the whole confusion around healthy fats and so you kind of touched on it is fat attached to food mm -hmm. it's generally a better option but do you want to expand on kind of your viewpoint of eating fats from the beginning uh, the approach that uh, dr fung takes is lots of saturated fat you know He's changing now, obviously, from this most recent book that he just released last week. But his original two, two or three books were all about, you know, lots of, you know, coconut oil and butter and cream and bacon fat and bacon and sausages. And as a dietitian, even though fat, we, we know that saturated fat is not associated with heart disease. It's certainly associated with raised LDL, mm -hmm. which is considered a proxy for raised heart disease. But it's not you know, one's not equal to the other. But we do know that certain kinds of fat, like monounsaturated fats and certain kinds of polyunsaturated fats, excluding 
industrial seed oils like canola and soybean oil, but oils like walnut oil or macadamia nut oil or pecan oil, pistachio nut oil are all good options for, you know, and certainly cold-pressed olive oil, avocado oil, are all wonderful sources of, of polyunsaturated monounsaturated fat. Also, they have saturated fat. Um, uh, olive oil actually is quite high in saturated fat, which people neglect to consider when they, uh, Dr. Zoe Harcroft, 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 I never can get her name right. I wrote a blog on it uh, showing that olive oil, two tablespoons of olive oil is higher in saturated fat than two ounces of sirloin steak. Yeah. Which really rattles people's cages. I figure we know polyunsaturated fats and monounsaturated fats are heart healthy. Everybody will agree to that. Yeah. So why not let, let's agree on, on the things that we can agree on. Why not promote those fats? Mm -hmm. and have saturate, add saturated fat as needed to eat a healthy diet. So if you, I, I don't encourage people to eat low fat cheese because it tastes like wax. Yeah, totally. Like plastic. Yeah. So eat real cheese that has real fat in it and don't eat more than four ounces in a day. Yeah. Um, trim meat of excess fat. Unless it's like, the way I put it is it eating barbecue chicken and eating the skin off crispy barbecue chicken makes you really happy. Eat it. <coughs> but if the recipe you're cooking isn't put making the chicken skin in a way that you really love it, then don't eat it. Like, don't add saturated fat if, you, if it's not going to make the food that much more enjoyable. Mm. So I, I tend to monounsaturated fats, even myself. I, I use cream in my coffee. I use butter, you know, on certain uh, things or to cook certain things. But to a large degree, my fats are olive oil, macadamia nut oil, avocado oil. I use coconut oil mixed with one of those uh, oils because it raises the smoking smoke point. But mm -hmm. I don't use, you know, make bulletproof everything and add whipping cream to everything and I don't really encourage people to do it because it's just providing um, a fat that yes will raise LDL and if people have you know um, familial hypocholesteremia or you know have unusual lipid panel uh, uh, patterns then that's not necessarily the best way to do it so focusing on the things that we can all agree on and then being a little bit more um, I don't know how to put it. Um, choosing whether to add, how much saturated fat to add. If, if it increases the enjoyability of the healthy foods you eat, then add, add it. They're not dangerous. Mm -hmm. but, um, but they I, don't I don't, get in the way don't see the goals. Or, sorry? I was going to say, but they can get in the way of your goals. It can get in the way of your weight goals. Yeah. And in, in some issues, it causes issues with, with people's uh, lipid panels. Yeah. So, you know, monitoring the, the blood work, it's a very small percentage of people that get into trouble with very high saturated fat intake, but there are some people that do. Yeah. Um, okay. So next question would be, what are your best tips for somebody who's super busy? Like <laughs> what are your kind of fastest uh, um, hacks or... 
I, I explained to people, I happen to be a foodie. I got fat cooking and I'm getting slim and helping other people get slim cooking. And I post my recipes on the recipe tab of my webpage. I also post recipes for smoothies, um, protein bars that are super easy to make that no bake, uh, that you can make like 12 of them, cut them all up, wrap them up in plastic and food. And they're like, all you do is you mix the stuff up, put it into a tray, chill it overnight and then cut it up and, and they're there uh, that are a complete meal substitute. So I do that. And the reason I do it is I do it for my clients. I do it for people who visit my webpage, but I encourage people to eat whole real food whenever possible. And that can include picking up a barbecue chicken at your favorite local food store and a big tub of um, salad greens and a package of raspberries or, or strawberries that you cut up on and put on top, some um, pumpkin seeds, just come home, cut up the chicken, make a salad with a little bit of feta, a little bit of fruit, some pumpkin, and it's there. If you don't have time to make salad dressing, use a good quality bottled one or make it on the weekend when you have more time or in an evening, you know, if you've got 15 minutes. But go for foods, buy, it's totally fine to buy good quality prepared foods. I have a client who's Middle Eastern background and loves shawarma and sublaki and, you know, all kinds of things like this, but doesn't have the time to cook it because she's got young children. I said, then go to your favorite shawarma place, buy, get them to prepare three or four or five pounds worth of shawarma, package it up in little packages, freeze it, date it, and pull it out and just, you know, Eat it with, and, and making a Greek salad on the side is super easy. You could mm -hmm. even buy that at a restaurant if you don't have time and put your own olive oil and lemon juice and oregano on it. You don't have to cook to do this. Yeah, you can let it be simple, but still focus on whole food. Or you can, you know, make one of my, you know, crispy keto pizzas or, uh, you know, whatever i've got uh, so many recipes low carb uh, shepherd's pie i mean if you feel like cooking and you like to cook great but lots of people especially professionals i have quite a few clients who are physicians and they don't have time there's no way they have time to cook so i give them all sorts of ideas based on the restaurants that they like and the restaurants uh, the, the types of foods that those restaurants have trying to steer them away from using industrial seed oils in their preparation and, and sometimes, you, have, you know, if you, it's a mom and pop, you know, Greek souvlaki place, they're willing to use olive oil if you pay a little more instead mm -hmm. of canola oil. If you're willing to pay a little more, you can have it cooked the way you like. Pick up a Greek salad and a, and a souvlaki and eat that. Mm -hmm. Barbecue chicken. Um, you're making me crave Greek food now. Ah, <laughs> Mediterranean is a big, um, I, I love uh, Greek salads for breakfast because mm. a lot of people have vegetables at breakfast and there's not a lot of, you know, you could have an omelet with vegetables in it, but I'm not an egg person. I don't like eggs in the morning. Well, this was going to be one of my other questions for you is I do, I don't like eggs, so I'm learning. I, is the I thought I was the only one. <laughs> I mean, I'll eat them, but I, I, you know, I'll eat a boiled egg occasionally, a poached egg, but that's like a rare exception. I could tell you egg stories from my childhood or my mom could, <laughs> but uh, uh, so what, what ideas do you give people for uh, breakfast ideas that don't have eggs? So I often tell yogurt. people that Greek yogurt. Yeah. Liberté makes a brand uh, that's 5%. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a 10% now too. Pardon me? 
they have 10% fat too. Would you, do you still recommend the 5% or? Uh, there's a, Olympia makes one that's 11%, um, mm -hmm. but it has higher carbs. So I, it's not the fat that steers me away from that one. It's the higher carbs. It's double. Mm -hmm. It has 12 grams of carbs versus six. Why well, have double the carbs for, for nothing? Yeah. Uh, Okay. 11% fat and had the same amount of carbs, I would be fine. 11% or 5% makes no difference. But I've never figured out why that is. Like I've tried to figure out the why it I has. I think because they add milk solids into it. Is that what it is? Okay. Milk solids are higher in carbs than, than the actual cream. Yeah. So I encourage people if you can get the Liberty, um, or Liberté 5%, that's a really good one because it's rich enough that keeps you really satisfied high enough in protein and low enough in carbs and i'll say have one and a half cups of that or some people can't even eat that. i can't eat that much it's so rich i eat three quarters of a cup with a few berries and a few pumpkin seeds there you go yeah or a few slices i bought uh some jarlsberg at um costco yesterday and i have a, a shaver cheese shaver from uh, a dutch store and I thought, hey, I could have thinly sliced Charlesburg for breakfast with my chopped up cucumbers. Wow, that was great. Greek salad, feta cheese, olives, cucumbers. And for me, tomatoes make my blood sugar go nuts. So mm -hmm. I, I'll take three or four of the little Marzano tomatoes and I cut them in ridiculously small pieces and put them on my much larger size cucumber pieces because... Um, well, I'll just let that go. It's probably, it could be a fax machine. Pardon me. Um, that, uh, now where was I? Uh, tiny pieces of tomato on oh, yeah. So I, it, it's a Greek salad. It has the same ratio of tomato to cucumber, except it's really only a fifth the amount of, um, yeah. of tomato. And, and, and really, if people are, diabetic or pre-diabetic, eating to your meter is a good thing. Check and see what happens. Um, okay, sorry about that. Um, eating to your meter. Uh, take your blood sugar fasting, eat tomatoes, eat 125 uh, you know, uh, milliliters or half a cup of tomatoes. Take your blood sugar again at 30 minutes, 60 minutes, in 20 minutes, 180, and see what happens to the curve. Plot it. If it shoots up to crazy thing at 30 and 60 minutes, don't eat those on an empty stomach. Eat them at the end after you've had your protein because that'll mm. slow it down. Nice. Um, okay, we're almost kind of out of time. Any other thoughts that you have or things we haven't covered that you'd like people to know? I think... One of the things that in terms of eating to your meter and thinking in terms of the types of foods that you like to eat, whether it's legumes or, or vegetables uh, or whatever, is there's a 2015 study that was done out of Israel that shows, and I've referenced it in a couple of my uh, blogs, so you could go into the search bar on the front page of my um, webpage and just put is Israel or Israeli in the search bar, and then you'll get the reference to those articles. But the 2015 study showed that whether people are diabetic, insulin resistant, or insulin sensitive, or pre-diabetic, their response to individual foods, the same amount of foods, fasting and unfasting, is entirely different. 
Hmm. They, they are of the opinion it has to do with our microbiome. Uh, this fellow, uh, Gabor Dozi, that I mentioned earlier, is starting to feel that there's a, an inflammation and microbiome component that affects how we respond to different foods. But on type 2 diabetic, in our mission, or in, in, um, in a partial, partial reversal for, for um, a period of time, Another type 2 diabetic who's also in reverse reflective diabetes, not necessarily going to respond the same to the same amount of food, fasting or not fasting, as I do. Mm-hmm. Someone who's insulin sensitive will respond differently than someone else who's insulin sensitive. So really, it's a very individual thing. I, I do a lot of work with my clients on in, evaluating their individual glucose response to foods they want to eat. Mm-hmm. Like if there's certain foods they want to have, and their diet, let's find out how you respond. And, and I start them from fasting and I compare it to standard known amounts of food. I, so we start from fasting. I give them a known uh, amount of, of that food and then we test it. Mm-hmm. And then, we, you know, then they can make an informed decision. Well, if you, you know, you've had 60 grams of that food and your blood sugar went up to, you know, 13.8 at 30 minutes and it was 10.2 at 60 minutes. But what do you think you should do? And that's that's interesting because I often talk to people about using, taking the approach of trying to treat their weight loss process as an experiment. So, you know, trying to recognize that nobody knows the right answer and figuring out for yourself what the right way to do. And I absolutely agree with you. And I think every person, you know, like, you hear a lot of clinicians saying, oh, it's an individual response. We have to tailor individual approach, but it really is. Mm-hmm. And every client that I have is different. And I don't know what their response is going to be based on their blood work. Get an idea when you've done a good you know, family history, medical history, looked at their blood work, how they may respond. But you don't really know until you test it. And you know, if people are going to do this long term, they need to know how they respond to the foods they want to eat. Yeah. And it's not hard to teach them how to do it. I have a whole pile of glucometers here that I'm willing to lend people for them to run experiments at home if they want to. Nice. That's a good idea. Like it's an interesting approach to just gather more data points for yourself. And with something like continuous glucose monitors that anyone can get now, Mm -hmm. you don't need a prescription and you don't need, uh, you know, you can get it at a pharmacy and get your own uh, sensor. People are, are doing it and testing and seeing how they respond. And it's, it's, it's going to, I believe, going to drive practice because you can get a whole bunch of non-diabetics who find out, wow, when I eat two pieces of toast and, and peanut butter in the morning, my blood sugar goes crazy. Yeah. But I'm not diabetic. Well, if, are you hyperinsulinemic? I don't know. Mm-hmm. And it raises a whole bunch of, I, I think, norm, normal, non metabolically unwell people using continuous glucose monitors are going to drive the change in clinical practice for healthy individuals. Interesting. Yeah. So do you want to, could you tell us your website um, for people to get those recipes and stuff? uh, LCHF hyphen RD is in registered dietitian. So it's low carb, healthy fat hyphen RD.com. And there's uh, a dietitian's journey is my story from March 5th, 2017 until today. 
Um, food for Thought is the research articles. I think there's 137 or 138 of them now uh, fully referenced. And then there's a recipe tab, which I'm about two, two recipes behind. I posted a yeast risen pizza that I've had people messaging me all morning. When are you posting the recipe? It looks so good. So I'm probably going to have to do it tomorrow morning because I have a lot of people who are like, but it was International Pizza Day. I want to make this recipe. I'm going to so, keep my eyes open for that because yeah, it's, I I made a a, a version of the um, the fathead pizza that's less rich that I really liked. It's higher in protein. I call it crispy keto pizza, and that's my go-to when I feel like pizza. Yeah, but I still find that much cheese too rich. I don't do well with really rich food, and I had created a um, a low carb flatbread that was not yeast risen. And I thought, I wonder if I foam the yeast and add it to the water and then add it to this and then let it rise and then make the, if it's going to taste more like a yeast dough. It was amazing. It was thin crust. It tasted like yeast. It had the, the smell of a yeast pizza and it was super thin crust. And I'm like, wow, like I just feel like I won the lotto. So yeah, I've got a lot of people who are, I make it in a tortilla press, so they're only like six-inch pizzas. That's great. And then you can freeze it, probably. You can freeze it. They freeze really well. And yeah. um, yeah. and then, again, when people have time, they're busy, they can make the, these pizza crusts, 20 of them in half an hour, freeze yeah. them with pieces of wax paper in between in a Ziploc bag, and pull them out frozen and make them. I do it all the time. I have clients that leave at 5.30, and I'm hungry and tired, and I want to go to bed. I'll put two of those out, dress them, stick them in my little convection oven, and I got and make salad while it's cooking. And then I got supper. I'm going to look out for that. But Joy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I've really enjoyed hearing your uh, viewpoints and your knowledge. That's been awesome. I'm glad. Uh, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. That was great. I really enjoyed getting to know Joy and hearing her thoughts. And in particularly, I think the information she talks about for people who aren't losing weight and how to approach how much fat to eat. I get that question lots, but her approach is just don't add fat, eat the fat that comes with your food and just don't add extra. And I really like that. It's so simple. And I like her thoughts about learning your individual response to certain foods using glucometers so that you know for you how certain foods affect you. And again, I think that would be particularly important in somebody who's struggling getting their blood sugars down or isn't seeing the results they want uh, from for weight loss. I just wanted to thank Joy again for taking the time to sit down and talk to me so we could all learn from her. Uh, if you have any questions about this episode, please send me an email over at info at weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca and I can either send them on to Joy or if we get lots of questions, maybe down the road, she'd be able to come back on. If you find this information is helpful, but you're just struggling applying it to your busy life, book a free introductory coaching session with me over at weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca under the work with me tab, and we can figure out how I can help. Having an extra person to work with you makes worlds of difference on figuring out these difficult problems. And even the ones that feel like there is no solution, we can find ways to work around them and tackle them together uh, and find a way for you to lose the weight you want and keep it off. 
All right. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Have a fantastic week. And now for a quick disclaimer. This podcast contains general education information on weight loss for physicians. I'm not providing medical advice and listening to this podcast does not create a physician-patient relationship. This podcast does not replace the need for consultation with a licensed professional and no information should be relied upon unless you have obtained specific advice or treatment from myself or another physician. Please review the terms and conditions located at www.weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca before continuing.